Hi, my name is Martin Purnell and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email ogc at accessradio.biz. You can check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and it gives me great pleasure to announce we have our own website now, which is offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest. Our guest today was born and raised in Cornwall and describes herself as a pilgrim. She has been a teacher, started and ran a high street coffee shop and won an award in 1998 from Whitbread for the Manor Counselling Service for which she was the founder director. Jeannie subsequently trained at Spurgeon's College and was an associate pastor and then a co-minister and more recently a Baptist minister before going freelance as a teacher and writer. Her books include Finding Our Voice, Held in Your Bottle, and her latest book, recently released, Heroes or Villains, which looks at the goodies and baddies of the Christian faith in the Bible. So, who would she like to have counselled? What would she have said to Jezebel or David, for instance? Does she use instant coffee at home? It gives me great pleasure to welcome to Offgood Christianity, and a lady who's very, very patient because we had so many technical problems. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Jeannie Kendall. Jeannie, thank you so much for your patience. Where are we speaking to you today from, please? Uh, so from Dorset in Muddyford. I'm about eight minute walk from the beach. Which beach are we talking about? Avon Beach, which is uh, it's near Christchurch, yeah. kind of up the road from Bournemouth. Muddyford Quay is near that. So anybody who knows that area will will know those places. Sounds lovely. These are five questions. I'll do my best. Question number one. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? Well, this was a really interesting one because I thought, oh, I should probably have someone worthy. But I had this moment a few years ago on the top of Corfe Castle, which, uh, again, is in Dorset. Yeah. And it's a very old, it's a ruin now. and it's. But I just had this moment, I thought, do you know, I'd really like to write a novel. I was just literally standing there kind of absorbing all the history. So actually, the person I've chosen is Agatha Christie. Oh, very good. And I've chosen her for a few different reasons, really. I'd like to know where she got her ideas from. Yeah. I do enjoy a good detective novel or on the TV, and I'd, I'd kind of like to know what happens in your mind for you yeah. to be able to come up with all those curious ways to murder people. <laughs> but she did say at one point that she loved the sun, the sea, the flowers, and travelling, and I really like all of those things. She also did say she likes embroidery, and I, I used to do a bit, but I gave that up. My eyes are a bit dicky now. Mm. Yeah, I just think she would be really interesting. But she also, of course, famously had that disappearance in 1926. She did. And I would ask her, although they do say that she kind of went into a fugue state and she genuinely did lose her memory, but, you know, the ex-therapist in me would like to delve a little bit and see, you know, is that really yeah. the case or uh, kind of what was what was going on there? And she does seem generally quite dismissive about emotional stuff. Uh, so, again, I'd like to just uh, find out a little bit more. It's a, Most therapists, I suspect, are incredibly curious about people. So I'm curious about her. And she was a lifelong kind of devout member of the Church of England. Oh, was she? She was. Yeah, she was. She stopped taking communion after her divorce. So I'd like to kind of ask her about it because I think that's really sad, actually. Yeah. If that's about feeling because that happened, she couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. But maybe it wasn't. Maybe there was something else going on. She had The Imitation of Christ, which was her mother's book, Thomas Kempis' book, I think, by her bedside. So lots and lots that I would like to talk to her about. It feels like she'd be really, really interesting, although I suspect a little bit guarded. 
So that's a challenge. From your intensive research stroke investigation <laughs> skills then, did it come across that she was actually a Christian, do you think? I, do you know, I always give people the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. And I think if if somebody is around in, a, in an atmosphere where Jesus is worshipped, then there's something going there. Why would you bother to turn up every week? I mean, I guess some people go, you know, for social stuff. Um, yeah. And that's actually, that's legitimate. That's okay. So I just think, you know, how are we to judge? And kind of where do we draw that line anyway? Just to be a little bit controversial. <laughs> you can hear the people sort of saying, oh, what do you want? Well, in the West, we're a bit, you know, have you signed on the dotted line? Yeah. And have you said these words? Oh, I don't think for a minute God's waiting for us to tick a few boxes. I think he's gracious and loving. And he's not anybody who wants to be remotely near him. is likely, yeah, that'll do. <laughs> that'll do for me. <laughs> I can say what I like now, you see, because I'm, I'm a retired minister, so no one is going to defrock me. Exactly. <laughs> the gloves are off, you know, and the billions of people that are listening to this podcast as we speak, you know, oh, some of them are going to be getting out a pen and paper, <laughs> which I'll give you all address later on. I don't want to answer them. But, you know, some of them might be really relieved and might be thinking, oh, that's good. Exactly. No, that's very, very good. Thank you very much indeed. You mentioned Corfe Castle. I went there as a 10-year-old in primary school. You take me back now because well, I'm like yourself in my late 20s, <laughs> in denial quite a bit. Yeah, so Corfe Castle, yes. Memories are flooding back on oh. that. Thank you very much. So, did you uh, grow up near there or was this just a very long school journey? Yeah, it was a long school journey for a week. We stayed in Swanage, if I remember correctly. I remember going down to Pool Harbour. I remember going to Brownsea oh, Island. Yeah. I remember going to the gift shops. This is what, 1970, 70, 71 sort of thing. And buying loads of presents for my family. And not one of my presents were, were received lovingly. <laughs> oh, dear. I remember that. Well, it, it sounds better than school journeys I used to do when I taught in Camberwell. And we would be hoiking them out of uh, Woolworths to empty their pockets. <laughs> so did you ever call it Camberwell Green by a chance? Or was it always just Camberwell? No, no, just Camberwell. And I'm not yeah. naming any names where I was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's wonderful now. I'm sure it is. Camberwick Green, that's another story. <laughs> Question two, who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Jeannie? Oh, yeah, this was an interesting one. And I do think this changes um, week by week according to what's caught my imagination. So this Sunday I'm preaching on the woman who anoints Jesus and she's she's called the sinful woman, which really annoys me. But anyway, yeah, that's another story. Just the lavish way in which she she kind of pours literally everything out. The Greek word is that she was crying for ages. I hadn't didn't realise that till I prepped this week. She's not my favourite person, by the way. This is just an aside. Yeah, yeah. But she, yeah, the Greek is that she was standing there crying for a long time. And I, I love that. I love that she was just able to bring all her brokenness um, to Jesus. So I love that story. And that always sits as a favourite. But my current favourite is Rizpah. Now, at this point, a few people who are listening might be going, who? <laughs> well, yeah, that includes me. I'm going to be totally honest. So she's an absolutely wonderful character from the Old Testament. How do you spell her name? R-I-Z-P-A-H. Like Mizpah, but... Yeah. Yeah, you see, <laughs> I do know Mizpah. So she was one of Saul's concubines, and she had a bit of a rough time in a couple of ways, which uh, I won't kind of go into. But after Saul's death, and of course she would have been pretty much persona non grata in that uh, by then, Yeah. there was a famine in the land, and David kind of decided, I guess, that this was because of 
a promise that hadn't been fulfilled to a group of people, the Gibeonites. And we're going back. So, you know, culture's different. Things are different. So he said to them, what, what do you want? Because I think I've done something wrong here. And, you know, that's another whole theological pot of worms. And so they say, well, we want seven of Saul's relatives killed. And this included Rizpah's two sons. So what they did, and as I say, different different kind of way of life altogether, very brutal, really, was they hung these seven sons of Saul, including her sons, on a hillside and left them there. Now, in that culture, the most disrespectful thing you could do to anybody was to not treat their bodies properly. But this woman, and it's just wonderful, she, she thinks, I'm not having that. So she goes up onto the mountainside. She must have had some help bringing food. But for four months, she was up on this mountainside beating off the birds and the beasts and whatever might come to disrespect both her sons and the other five. And she kind of just kept beating them away. And in the end, after four months, and we know it's four months because it says, you know, when, when it began and ended, yeah. the king, King David, was so ashamed by her essentially quiet protest that he dealt with those seven, they would have been bones by then, but also actually Saul and Jonathan, whose bones had also not been buried. So not only did her quiet protest um, have find justice for those seven, but also actually for Saul and Jonathan. I love the courage of the woman, yeah. but also the fact that she was able to shame a king. And she did it from love. That's the thing. And I think sometimes our loving people well we don't realise the impact actually that has. I don't think she was up there thinking King David's going to sort this out. I think she was up there thinking, I'm not having this. These are my boys. And that was the result. I just, you know, a fantastic story. Brilliant. No, I'm glad you shared that. As you said, it, you know, love is the answer on this. And you're shaming people, not wanting to shame them, but you're doing it through love rather than saying, I know me rights. I'm going to sort it out. I'm going to go on strike. I'm going to chain myself to the local guillotine or whatever, you know, to make a protest. That's what they did. Yeah, no, brilliant, brilliant. And then, of course, there's the quiet body of women who must have been bringing her up food and water unless she lived on berries for four months. And they're unnamed. We don't know who they were, but they were part of this wonderful story. And we, we just don't know, what, you know, what our quiet part of ordinary life might be doing. See, I'm really looking forward, if we've got time, the way things are going <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's brilliant. Because I said, you know, at the very beginning to you off air, you know, where we think we're going to go and where we end up, well, we just don't know. But uh, if we've got time, he says, slightly sarcastically, I want to talk about your new book, Heroes or Villains. And I'll tell you why later on when we get to that. And it's to do with women, funnily enough, women in the Bible. Thank you. That's a great answer. Rizpa, R-I-Z-P-A-H. If you're Prime Minister for the day, Jeannie, and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be? And I'll take a frivolous answer as well if you want. Oh, yeah, I think a frivolous one is definitely anywhere where I want to start. So I am proudly Cornish. Are you a Janna? Is that what we call you? A Janna, is that oh, right? I don't know. I thought somebody from Cornwall was called a Janna, or maybe that's somebody from Plymouth. Uh, oh, well, that's the other side of the English border. <laughs> I know. Well, that's in Devon. <laughs> yeah, so my frivolous law would be I would make the Cornish pasty the national food of the whole of the UK. Now... I, I bet a lot of people listening don't know why pasties are pasties. Do you know why pasties were pasties? I do. Well, but, certainly for the crimping anyway. I know why the crimping is there. Yeah, so the crimping was was for the miners to hold them because they, they were eaten down the mine. But they had the meat at one end and they had the fruit at the other. So you'd have your, your main course and your dessert all in one go. I mean, what more can you want? 
And mm. then you, well, you could start either end, depending on your taste, I guess. Yeah. And then when you'd finished, you threw away the crust. I told a friend of mine this recently, and they were horrified. They said, well, that's the best bit. <laughs> what? That's the whole point, is they could throw away a dirty crust. So there we go. I know Ginster's gets a bad press for some people, but I love a Ginster's pasty. Oh, no, I better not name names, but it's got to be a proper Cornish one. Without carrots in, because real pasties do not have carrots in, just so. <laughs> That's right, isn't it? I need to, yeah, it is. I need to learn to uh, make them, really, to be properly Cornish, I guess. But. Yes. No, I do love a good pasty. So there you go. When you make them, send some over to me, please. There you go. There's your <laughs> challenge for the day. You can buy them from Cornwall and they ship them to you. Get me all hungry now. <laughs> Question four. Oh, sorry, no. So that was your frivolous one. Thank you. Have you got another answer or is that is that it? The serious one, but to be honest, I'm not a lawmaker, so I, I would have to have serious help with this mm -hmm. but the one thing that does really well there are lots of things that worry me but one of the things that worries me is just the whole thing of social media and children I've got two grandchildren yeah. and had this kind of safeguarding conversation with my granddaughter the other day and she oh oh nana you just delete the app <laughs> and she's only three <laughs> yeah oh, to be fair she's 13 going on 33 <laughs> uh, she's brilliant but it does worry me yeah. the whole effect so Things to make it much safer than it clearly is at the moment would be, but I'd need a lot of help with framing that. No, I, I agree with you. I would, I'd love to see social media collapse. You know, and there have been quite a few well-known ones. If we go back 20 years ago, you know, one of the big social networks, that's gone completely. Then it was replaced by something that's gone. Maybe you know, we could be seeing the start of social media just collapsing within itself. Doubtful, but you never yeah, know. Something needs to happen for sure. Yeah, it does. Question four, outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please, Jeannie? Well, can I sneak two in? And I'll yes, be, of course you quick. can. I'm in a good mood. So, <laughs> so the first one was, for years and years, I'd wanted to uh, see puffins. I like bird watching, my yeah. hubby and I. And we wanted to get to Skoma, and he'd taken me as a surprise. It's far too long a story for the podcast, but to get onto a boat to Skoma. And the first time, we hadn't been able to because it was too rough. Where's Skoma? Uh, so it's off the Wel uh, Welsh coast, mm -hmm. kind of nearish to St David's. If it's rough, they can't take you. So I kind of got a bit like, oh, it's obviously not going to happen. So we went again. You have to queue really early. Long story short, we, we were the last two people on a boat to Skoma. Um, and literally, as we were going on the boat across, there was puffins flying. And I'm not ashamed to say I wept. I was so yeah. excited to see these puffins and you you get very close to them and it was just a wonderful magical day day out it was just fabulous it is the other day out which was slightly more than a day out but was um we took a trip to iceland formerly known as bee jams of course i'll do that just yeah. straight away. get <laughs> yeah. that over and done with i was waiting for that <laughs> gave a whole new meaning to uh, mum goes to iceland for uh, for the family it's just uh, stunning. It's Apparently like so. the person that I was with said it's like creation in the making. Never been anywhere like it, and I don't think I ever will again. But watching, watching the geysers and watching the the steam coming from the ground, where you couldn't tread, you had to be on boardwalks. Yeah. And and actually, again, interestingly, seeing puffins only this time over what's called the black beach, which is black volcanic sand, and then the puffins flying over that. Oh, yes. You know, wonderful. Brilliant. A good friend of mine who I played golf with, he came back yesterday from oh. Iceland because his daughter married an Icelandic bloke. Oh, wow. And so he was over there for a, a nice long weekend. So, yes, he says how fantastic. Yeah, wonderful. There. Bit cold in the sea, but apparently you've got a nice load of uh, swimming pools, etc., that are powered by 
the natural geezers. They are, yeah. Yeah, Regonia puffins. You have to come to Northern Ireland because we've got on right on the north coast, just not far from us, here, an island called Rathlin Island. The RSPB have got a big sanctuary on the west coast of the island. It's not very big, it's only about a mile long. But you've got loads of puffins there. And my late father-in-law and I, we cycled there once, not obviously on the water, but when we got there. <laughs> that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? And when we got there, they had an albino puffin. So there oh, you go. I have seen an albino puffin. Yeah. Yeah, they are gorgeous to see. Thank you. Question five then. Your most embarrassing moment. What is it, please, Jeannie? Oh, do you know, I've had a few. <laughs> Too few to mention. Yeah, but the one I, I thought I would um, say, so a few years ago when I was in the first church that I served in and I was associate minister there at the time and had a new boss and he was very good but very much a perfectionist. And so we had planned this big carol service, you know, the sanctuary's full, 250, there's an overflow in the hall, it's his first carol service. So he'd given me the job of doing, uh, getting the readings organised. So I thought, that's fine, I can do that. Lots of stuff happened. And so I was running around beforehand and then realised I was actually starting the service. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's OK. Time starts. I, I get up there and my, I've got to do the first reading. I open my Bible and I can't see the words. <laughs> so I hadn't thought about that, to be fair. You know, in these days, I would have thought about it and thought, are the words big enough? And there's nothing I could do. There's about 400 people watching me wow. for these introductory words. And my boss, by this time, is beginning to look slightly unnerved in the front row. So I thought, you know, what can I do? So I, I had to say, I'm sorry, guys, I can't see the words. <laughs> what else do you do, really? Song and dance routine, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> so the youth worker brings me up a pair of glasses. <laughs> I put these on. I still can't see the words. So then I said to her, you know, I still can't see. So, you you know, you come up with your glasses. So she comes up. She can't read them either. <laughs> and it, it transpires that actually it was just a combination of the light. It's candlelit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So actually kind of pretty much nobody could. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then we kind of stumbled through. And most of the readings were a little interesting. <laughs> and the next day I had to say to my boss, because I'm a bit of a perfectionist as well, actually people on the door were saying to me, that was brilliant. What a great way to start the service because everybody felt at ease because they were all laughing, you know, most of them were guests. But I had to say to my boss the next day, please don't say anything because whatever you're going to say, I will feel worse than you can make me feel. But it was. I don't think you'd have done any better, really. I don't think anyone could have done anything better than what you did. Well, it was quite a moment. But I told some students, I was teaching at Spurgeon's, that year and I told them about it and so that year they gave me a little clip on light for a lectern oh brilliant (laughs) brilliant oh that's good thinking and talking of Spurgeons you were the former Spurgeons College president according to social media I was (laughs) tell us more about what Spurgeon College is for those that don't know and what a president actually does at Spurgeons College please so yeah it's one of several um, Baptist training colleges there are a few of them and Spurgeons is in South Norwood in London I've taught there different ways over the years. I actually still teach pastoral supervision by Zoom for them. But college president is not as grand as it sounds. You hold a position for a year. It's a kind of honorary position. And the main purpose is to plan college conference, which happens in June every year. And they're often quite clever people that do it and quite clever speakers. So I wanted to kind of get away from that. So the theme for the year that I did it was ordinary people, ordinary saints. And it was about being ordinary. <laughs> and, you know, I said to them, because it was catered at lunch, and I said, oh, can we have fish and chips? Because I couldn't think of anything more yeah. ordinary. 
and they were the people that spoke they're brilliant they're friends of mine but they weren't apart from perhaps Roy Searle who's quite well known but the others weren't especially but it was fantastic I loved it and actually the students said oh that was so good I think it was partly because they could understand all of it more because sometimes it can be quite yeah, really serious speakers and this yeah. was all serious but it was people telling their stories and people just love stories don't they there's nothing I think that captures us more than a story told and particularly when it's somebody's own story so yeah it was good no exactly exactly it's like Jesus you know why did he tell parables because people love stories yeah yeah they do and you know people get hung up sometimes who are Christians about oh you know how do I tell other people about Jesus but just live your life and tell your story when you're asked it's not hard <laughs> no exactly exactly well that's the end of the interview that's it you send it all up but it's true that's all we've got to do but we, sometimes we just make so much mountain out of a molehill and it's just just be who you are yeah. it's like you said regarding your most embarrassing moment actually it's not really embarrassing because it was turned around for good because people could see you're just yourself you're just being who you are yeah that's true greatest compliment someone ever gave me was that i was exactly the same on and off the platform or in and out of the pulpit that's exactly right that's how it should be well that's great and for those that don't know who spurgeon is or why it's called spurgeon college Spurgeon is Christian name and college was his surname. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more, please. Uh, oh, gosh. It was Charles Spurgeon. Don't ask me when he lived. And I, of course, probably should know all of that. Interesting, though, because he actually never did any theological training himself. Oh, really? <laughs> no. So there's a certain irony. Oh, wow. Um, and he, he wrestled, too. He wrestled with his uh, emotional life. He would get quite dark times. Really? Which, uh, yeah, which uh, so many people, both biblically and yeah, it's like Winston Churchill, isn't it? The black dog that he, black he, dog, as he yeah. described his depression. Yeah, uh, we wouldn't use that language now, but yeah, I think Spurgeon too. He had he had stuff he wrestled with, don't we all? Just in different ways. Yeah, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, wasn't it? That I think his name. Oh, thank you. Yes. In the eighteen hundreds, the Elephant and Castle in London. I think he had a big tabernacle thing there, didn't he? So he yes, he did. Yeah, you now dread the limit <laughs> of my remembered knowledge. I'll bail you out. <laughs> Do you know, I really hope no one from Spurgeon's College is seeing They're going to be saying she's done a rubbish job. <laughs> Let's make it up then. Yes, he played football for Man United you know, <laughs> and got booed all the time. Has to be Manchester City. Uh, our grandson supports Manchester really? City. So. Yes, because uh, when I did my five questions, my frivolous answer was that uh, unless you lived in Manchester or had a parent or grandparent who came from Manchester, you can't support Man United. So that was that was my frivolous rule if I was Prime Minister for the day. So we'll let your grandson off if he's Man City. With that in mind then, how come you ended up being a president of a college when you know you started off your life and you were a teenager when you became a Christian down in Cornwall? Tell us what happened to lead it all up to that, please. Oh my word, that uh, that'd be a whole podcast <laughs> in itself. I, I came to London mainly because I wanted to go somewhere else because I wanted to do a drama course. I wanted to be affiliate to Ian McKellen's Hamlet at Minack Theatre in Cornwall. That was my... And did you? No. No. <laughs> but I ended up with Teacher Training College in, in London in the end. And to be honest, from quite an early-ish age, after I'd become a Christian, that was, I kind of thought, oh, I think I might end up in some sort of full-time Christian work or full-time Christian ministry, however we want to call it. I thought I was going to marry a vicar because they didn't have... As far as I knew, well, they didn't have Anglican women ministers, mm -hmm. and I'd become a Christian in an Anglican church. They did, of course, have Baptist deaconesses, as they were called a long time ago. But 
and it's a really long story as to how I got there, to be honest, but it's probably surprised me more than anybody else that I ended up as a minister. I remember just before I went for interview, what they call Ministerial Recognition Committee, and the night before I was... At... No, I shouldn't, I shouldn't laugh. That's one heck of a title. Isn't, isn't it just? I, I'm an interviewer on it now. So oh, brilliant. I'm sort of poacher turned gamekeeper. <laughs> but I remember having this conversation with God that went, you know, like, do, do you know where I'm going tomorrow, God? And I felt like he said, well, yes, obviously, I'm God. So I do know where you're going. <laughs> and my, my conversation went, and you know that they'd have to be mad to take me. And I kind of almost felt like God laughed and said, yeah, and that's exactly the whole point. And, you know, I think God's wonderfully creative. He doesn't choose the obvious people. Um, I wasn't an obvious person. Do you know what? I'm glad you said that because uh, my Daily Bread Bible notes for today, so if people can work out, if they get out their Daily Bread Bible notes, they'll know exactly what day we're recording this on, is just about that. You know, that Jesus, when he chose the 12, he didn't choose the most handsome of blokes. He didn't go and choose, oh, well, they're always the best and everything else. Like that. He chose the people he knew would be willing to, and obedient to do the job. Yeah, and he chose the ones who hadn't been chosen by the other rabbis. Yeah, because the other you know, rabbis would come around and choose the best and the brightest, and none of these guys had made that cut. You know, I love it. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So people, if they go to church on Sunday, think, "Why has he got that job? He should be having it. It should be Bert down there, the <laughs> <laughs> the janitor, or something like that." Which yeah. Is, which is brilliant. I'm just thinking, before we get to Heroes or Villains in your book, in all the jobs that we've sort of alluded to in the past, if you had time again to redo certain jobs, what would you do differently this time? Oh, gosh. In a strange way, I'm not sure I would, in that when I first stood up um, and was presiding over communion, and, and I had this wonderful sense of coming home, and it's still something I love to do. Don't get to do it too often now, because I mm -hmm. often preach elsewhere, but they don't often ask you to do communion. But when I looked back, I thought, actually, all the things that I'd done before kind of fed into that moment and everything that I've done since, you know, teaching, obviously. And I loved teaching, particularly in the Camberwell School. I went to a school afterwards, which um, which I won't name, but that was a lot posher. And to be honest, it didn't suit me as well. <laughs> but, you know, I could see how that linked in and then kind of working for Manor Christian Centre, which sadly has recently closed, but in books and then in the counselling you could kind of see how God had, had webbed all of that together. Yeah. And so I, I'm not sure that I I would, actually. I'd certainly still do the same things. Maybe I'd do them a bit better. I'm sure I made lots of mistakes in, in all of the things that I did. But all of them I, I genuinely loved, actually. Well, that's a great answer. I think that's going to encourage a lot of people listening today as well. You know, if you have your time back, well, A, you can't anyway. Yeah. But look at the positives. You know, let's forget the negative side of it. Let's look at the yeah. positives and see what can happen. And you know, it's not too late now. Because I remember when I was uh, seriously thinking of becoming a, a Christian, that you know, it was explained to me like being on a train track. And you, you know, your train track is a straight journey that God wants you to go on. But sometimes you take a long detour. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, but if you want to come back to it, God will bring you back onto that train track again. Yeah, and I think after we become Christians, we often take all sorts of detours. You know, on a daily basis, really little ones, yeah. and then. Sometimes yeah. longer ones. Um, I mean, the prodigal son story is he's not only waiting, he's running down the track, you know. Yes. And then they just didn't do that in those days, did they? The, the guy to run would have had to pull up his kind of his robes, you know, terrible thing to do. So disrespectful for the, the man of the family. He was running. He was going, you know, and that, that's what God's like. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said prodigal son because uh, a podcast that went out three or four weeks ago 
was with Brendan McManus and we talked about the prodigal son and I did my usual joke. But he had a catchphrase and his catchphrase was, we're all pilgrims in this life. And at the top end, we talked about, or I talked about you calling yourself a pilgrim. So with Brendan saying we're all pilgrims in this life, what does that mean to you, please, Julie? Well, I think particularly because pilgrims are journeying. And and sometimes mm-hmm. you hear Christians talk as though they've got it all sewn together. And sometimes, of course, you hear that in, you know, some of the very extreme teaching that happens in different places where everything's clear and it's definite and it's black and white. And if this is what the Bible says, it's not nearly that clear most of the time, let's be honest. So I, I like that kind of journeying idea. And then actually, ultimately, we're going home. But at the moment, we're kind of meandering along and there'll be some amazing places to see on the way. You know, pilgrims would go from place to place where there was something special and we get those special moments. But most of it is just ordinary uh, and that's OK. And let's not pretend that we've got everything sewn up and, you know, we know. I, I, I worry I worry if I'm honest about people who are like super, super, super definite. Let's be honest that there are grey areas and things we don't yet understand. And that's all part of being a pilgrim for me. So $64,000 question then. What's a grey area for you? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) oh, how much trouble am I going to get myself in? Not a lot with me. You'll be fine. (laughs) I think the thing is, for me, there are very few things that are the core of the gospel. We have a God who created us and absolutely loves us, all of us, whether we, we're trying to be in touch with him or not, he adores us. Jesus lived as God and as fully human and he died for us. And for me, the image for that is, I think of that as God's hospitality, that Jesus literally opened his arms in welcome to us on the cross. That's what it was about. And that he was resurrected because otherwise what's the point? and that he continues to be at work in our lives. Now, those to me are like the core of the gospel. There's a whole lot of other stuff around the edge that people get in a stew about that for me are not the core of the gospel. We're going to disagree on those things around the edges, and that's okay as long as we can disagree respectfully and lovingly. That's all right, because they're not at the core. But people get hung up on all sorts of things around those edges and it it changes you know when I first was a Christian it was you shouldn't watch telly on a Sunday I don't know anyone who still holds that anymore you know (laughs) that's not true and then there was a big thing about shops opening on Sunday and I know some people still want to be careful how they treat Sundays and that's fine but you know it will change where the area is that people get hung up about but you know let's just get hung up about the things at the centre and let's please get known for what we do believe and the things that we do stand for and not the stuff that we don't you know that's one thing that winds me up you might have gathered that from my tone let the church be known for what it stands for so what does it stand for love loving you know love really does win yeah love really is at the core of it all and so often christians are known for judgment and even sadly for hatred i don't read that in the new testament so, yeah, let's get our priorities straight. Perhaps I should get off my soapbox now. <laughs> no, keep going. Keep going. Because, you know, the, the people that we've lost already, they're not going to come back, so don't worry about it. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that is true. 
all those Man United fans have upset. Don't worry about that. They've gone. So <laughs> yeah. Carry on. But it's so it's so the case, isn't it? You know, I, I did jury service um, a few years back on a murder trial, six weeks. So we got to know people in the jury really yeah. well. Still in touch with several of them. Oh, wow. And one of them on the first day when she found out that I, I was a minister, well, I couldn't repeat what she actually said. It, you'd have to bleep it. But um, she was a bit horrified. Obviously, she thought I was going to be really kind of... I don't know, prissy and, Bible basher. and whatever, yeah. And she said, I could never come into a church. The whole church would collapse, you know, just because she thought churches were about lots of awfully good people, yeah. you know, who, who've got their lives together. And, and uh, you know, wonderfully, a few months later, she came in. Wow. And she loved it. And she loved it. And she's bought all of the, all of the three books and she loves them. And I hope over these six weeks that, that I managed to communicate that, you know, Christians are not all judgmental and all of those things which she she thought they were it's tragic it's interesting what you said earlier on as well when you prefaced it by it depends where you live as to what the things on the outside of the the core values might be really important to you because i know if we went say to the northwest coast of scotland there would be people there saying no you can't open a shop on a sunday full stop and then that'd be another thing as well as you move around great britain there's so many other regions. So, yeah, regions are an important place to live. What else do you think would be uh, spurring things on for people to have these core values incorrectly put in, the, in their lives? I mean, often, of course, it's it's upbringing and the culture that they're growing in. So that would be true sort of around the UK, that region it would, but, of course, even more so in the, in the world generally. So if you're in the some of the southern states, for example, in America, there'd be a whole bunch of things. But a lot of it, I think, is upbringing. It's what people have imbibed. It's not necessarily what they've been told because as children, we, we hear things that people aren't saying mm. um, because we're trying to make sense of the world. And so sometimes people will make all sorts of assumptions as children to try and make sense that aren't really the case. And then, of course, if they do come into contact with churches, the kind of things that they were told there. In my very early days as a Christian, it was very much, a, well, women don't become ministers, for example, which is still an issue in quite a few places and sometimes I think it is coming from within it's the fears that we hold or the prejudices that we hold um, which we maybe don't want to look at there's so much of us inside that we we don't want to look at as part of why I wrote Heroes or Villains which we will get to in a minute (laughs) yeah yeah no worries it wasn't it wasn't a hint because all of that stuff is inside then we what the psychologist calls, we project it out. Mm. So we won't look at it in us, so we look at it in somebody else. Yep. And we hate it in someone else when actually the issue is within. And that's much harder to get to because people are often so loath to look at what's inside. We're scared of what's inside us yes. so often. Yes. Yeah. We can talk about projection on another time. And, in fact, we've had a psychotherapist and psychologists on previous podcasts and we've talked about that. And it's a very important subject. But uh, I have a question here. He's just moving on. Let me read it out. Why did you write <laughs> Heroes or Villains? Let's talk about that, please, because there's such a lot I'd like to discuss with you on that. So why? Yeah, it's, it's curious. All three of the books have had a different sort of a different conception because it's a bit like giving birth, I think. And he's, in my part, a lot easier than giving birth was. But And I was just having a conversation with my grandson and he was talking about Avengers, a character, and he knows I don't really know who they are. So I said to him, uh, Gable is there. So, you know, Gabriel, is that a goodie or a baddie? He answered me. I can't remember which character was there. And as he answered me, I thought, oh, gosh, Jeannie, you know better than this. You know, you know that, yes, in cartoons that's true, but you know that in life that's, it's not how it is. And it started a whole train of thought thinking about people 
in the Bible who we think of as goodies or baddies, heroes or villains, but it's not actually really that simple. And we know that, of course, with some of the good characters that, you know, David's prime example, I mean, you know, royally messed up, literally, in all sorts of ways. Yep. But I was also thinking, well, what about some of the bad characters? You know, what are the things in, in them that we might identify with? And wanted from that, I love writing imaginatively. It's, it's just, I love to do that. And all the three books include that. So I wanted to write imaginatively about these characters as them or as someone associated with them, because I think it just helps bring that to life for people yes. who, who may be a bit stale reading the Bible or have never read it. But also, what about those qualities in us? You know, how do they come about? How do they develop? How do we either try and encourage them if they're good qualities or try and more honestly deal with them if they're not so good? So that's how it kind of all came about. I would like to do a special podcast with you, if that's all right, assuming you like this one. <laughs> of course. Because I was blown away about a few years ago on Channel 4, and it was called Jesus's First Female Disciples. And my wife and I found it again last year. It's on YouTube. Channel 4 put it on there. And it just blows away so many myths. What was a disciple? Did Jesus have any women disciples? So perhaps we could uh, arrange a contract later on after we finish <laughs> the podcast and talk about it, because it's something that I think we should all understand and was that program correct in saying that a lot of women were airbrushed out of the Bible? You know, I'd love to talk about that if that's right with you. So. Yeah, uh, if not airbrushed, certainly maybe dealt with in a way that we might question. Yeah. Really. Some of that's how we read it. It's not necessarily how it was written, um, although, of course, it was particularly the Old Testament was deeply patriarchal and, and actually the, you know, the New Testament still. So we read things differently now through different eyes, I think. So sometimes we can be a little bit unfair. Yeah. Paul has had this awful reputation, St. Paul, as, as not being pro-women. He's terribly pro-women. You know? Yeah, well, this is interesting that, you know, as a lady yourself, you're saying this. So I, I feel a contract coming on here whereby you should sign on the dotted line right now and book yourself in for a, a second podcast. That's right. we'll, we'll go for it. No problem. Sold. Sold. Meanwhile, back in reality. No, but I'll, I'll talk to you there off air if that's right. Going back to heroes or villains then, Jezebel. Now, for those who don't really know who Jezebel is, who was she? And if you could go back in time and do your counselling skills on her, what would you get out of her, do you think? Oh, yeah. So Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament, and they were both villainous. I mean, they were villainous. There's no two ways about it. And he was, I think, quite a weak man. And she was very much the powerhouse in that relationship as we read the story. And she was awful, but... And actually, I loved writing about her in the book because I, it's it's a bit like acting, isn't it? It's more fun to act a villain than it is to act somebody who's good. I used to do pantomime and... and um, oh, no, you didn't. Oh, yes, I did. Hey. <laughs> uh, just in the local church, we had some some yeah. actors there who did it. But And it's just much more fun being villainous. So writing as Jezebel, oh, I had such fun. It was I really enjoyed it. So I hope people enjoy that part of the book. But if I went back and talked to her, you see, I think I would start from... A more empathic place than most people might think. Okay. Because um, she was politically married off. Okay. I very much doubt she married Ahab for love. This would have been to do with their nations, mm -hmm. as most of that those kind of marriages were in those days, probably still are <laughs> in some respects. And then she was kind of pulled out of her own homeland where she had a system of worship. Now, yes, we can say. It was a pagan system of worship, but this was what she knew. 
This was what she was brought up. This would have been flowing through her veins and taken into this land where they had a completely different God who was foreign to her in the same way that those gods she worshipped were foreign to the Israelites. Now, what does that do to a person? You know, they've been ripped from their own land. And actually, you've got to give her credit, although I'm sure some people will be horrified to hear me say this, you've got to give her credit for hanging on to her own religion and not just rolling over and saying, oh, okay, I'll worship your God then. Mm-hmm. And also for for somehow managing this marriage to this weak man. And, and in, in the story of Naboth's vineyard, which is the one that I particularly concentrate on in the book, Ahab's kind of moaning around the place. Oh, I'd like this vineyard, you know, in a sort of miserable way. And she gets up and she does something about it. Now, she's totally wrong. So don't mishear me. She is a complete villain. But actually, there's more to it. So I would want to explore with her, her childhood and her growing up. And of course, because that's what therapists do. It's not all we do, of course. But, you know, the impact that that had on her and the impact that being kind of pulled out of there into this political marriage to this apology for a king and how perhaps that may well have pushed her into being more villainous. She almost had to become a more extreme version of the bad parts of herself to survive in that environment. Probably not the the story of Jezebel you've often heard preached. (laughs) But, yeah, I just think there's more to her than meets the eye. Yeah. So she's not all that bad, would be the tagline. Yeah, no, she's totally that that bad. (laughs) But as always, there's an underpinning to that story. Yeah, she's totally that bad, but not all that bad. But actually, she really is that bad. (laughs) To sum it up in the Janet and John language. Leaving women out this now, because I really would want to do that that podcast with you again. If we move to the, the New Testament, heroes and villains outside of the first four Gospels. What comes to mind as far as a bloke is concerned who's good and also who's bad? So outside the four Gospels, mm. I mean, the, the book ends with St. Paul uh, or Paul. And I think people will be really surprised because what I look at with him is vulnerability. And I think written within particularly um, some letters um, and people, of course, need, need to buy the book to find this out. That's just my little plug. But where would they find it, by the way? The book? Yes. Let's do a publicity bit on it. Oh, OK. So if you've not bought it, um, all the usual channels, I need to plug the Christian bookshops because there's, you know, they're a, a dying breed. Um, so you can get them there. But, you know, also all the all the usual places where you can purchase books online. <laughs> Thank you. Meanwhile, after the advert break. Yeah, but uh, Paul, yeah, it's quite clear from some of his letters, particularly actually to Corinthians, that he's much more, was much more fragile at parts of his life than we think. So we think of this great conquering hero, you know, planting churches everywhere, and he was all of those things, remarkable human being, mm-hmm. but clearly really quite this vulnerable side to him. And I'm big on us owning our vulnerability, us not pretending to be superheroes. You know, one of my writing heroes is Brenny Brown, which some some of the um, folks listening will have come across. She writes a lot about vulnerability. Okay. If you've never come across Brenny Brown, Google her TED Talks, The Power okay. of Vulnerability. She's she's brilliant. And so I, I love that about Paul, that there's that both this enormous faith and strength and rootedness in in his very real kind of encounter with Jesus, literally, but also this more vulnerable side. You know, why Why did Luke, the doctor, travel with him, for example? Well, yeah, maybe that was because he, he needed someone like that. Um, and we know, of course, that he had something wrong with him because he talks about a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. But yeah. 
but clearly also more fragile, perhaps um, emotionally than as well as that. Yeah, but I love that the reality of that. Yes, the thorn in the flesh. I remember a good friend of mine saying, "Oh, that's because he was harshly sighted or he couldn't see properly, whatever." And then would say, and that's why he says, uh, "Look at the handwriting that is really big or something." He says in one of the books. Yeah, could be that. Yeah, said, but the thing is, then I read Nick Page's one of his great books on on the Bible and everything else. He said. What you have to understand is is that because the parchment was so expensive, they would write incredibly small in writing styles. So that's why he must probably write this why it's so big, because it was far bigger than the normal scribe who would uh, make it as small as possible. So Yeah, it's also true. And, uh, you know, Paul had been, he'd been beaten, he'd been flogged, he'd been imprisoned. You know, who knows what yeah. kind of physical stuff that I'd left him with as well. You know. So for the feminists that are listening today, uh, who would then most probably turn around or someone might turn around and say, oh, yes, but he was a misogynist, you know, and they would quote a verse. How would you counter that? Yeah, but he's been totally misread. Unfortunately, well, not unfortunately for him, but, you know, he wrote in Greek and, and we read it in English. And so sometimes the translations of that aren't very good. And I was really helped by a book, I don't know if it's even still available now, but called What Paul Really Said About Women. So just to give one example, um, I was preaching a week or so back on Titus 2, and, you know, when you go and preach somewhere, you just get given a text. And I, I looked at this, thought, oh, no, because <laughs> it, it has, you know, wives, something about wives submit to your husbands. And, oh, dear. My husband had a bit of a giggle about it. But actually, if you look at the word that Paul used for submit, submit's not a terribly good translation because there are a lot of words in Greek that he could have chosen that were about what we would call submitting, that were about somebody giving in to someone else or um, being kind of under someone else or all that sort of different. Lots of Greek words he could have chosen and he didn't. Um, He chose a a word that was used of teamwork in in the army, of people playing their part together. So in that culture, yes, that would have been different from now, but the the implication of his words are not derogatory. They are about playing your part. And they would have been living in in very mixed households, several generations, probably slaves. And so in, in that part, there would have to be a certain structure to make it work. Mm. It's not how we are now. So now us working like people together in the army playing their part would look different. Um, so I think a lot of it is bearing in mind the culture that he was writing into. And they the early church was very fledgling. It was very young and embryonic, and they couldn't turn over things in society. They would have been wiped out. Yes. Now we can be much more overtly protesting about things that are wrong. But it was difficult then. They were concentrating on changing hearts because if they tried to change societal structures, as I say, that we wouldn't be having this conversation. They would have been stamped out, wiped out pretty quickly. That's another great line. He was changing hearts, not societal structures. Expand on that. I think the way that Paul wrote and spoke, he was looking for people's lives to be overturned or turned the right way up, I would say, by their relationship with Jesus. And then that would work its way out, but in the in a gentle way, rather than standing up and down and protesting on, in the middle of a Roman city, you know, and just getting themselves... Well, they did get mauled by lions, so I can't say that really. But yeah. And so I think it was in that time, that was kind of what was what was needed. I mean, I would argue in many, time, in many ways, that's what's needed now. I think it is right that we protest, and there's a chapter on protest mm-hmm. uh, attached actually to RISPA in, in the book. Oh, wow. So I, I don't think that's wrong, but I think it needs to come from this place where we have been 
changed from within first because otherwise we can be very strident as Christians yes. and come across very negatively, as we've talked about earlier on, rather than coming from this place that because we love, therefore we must protest. And really the early Christians were living out lives of silent protest, and that is why they ended up in the Colosseum and places like that. Now we don't have to be so silent, but it still has to come from the same place that we've been changed from inside. Yeah. I mean, one of my heroes is Dr. Martin Luther King, and when you look at what he did, and you know, it was a silent protest a lot of the times, you know, all the, the civil marches that they did, and they would walk across bridges, and some white people joined in as well, which is brilliant. Why everybody else didn't join in, I don't yeah. know. But they were challenged, but no force was being used, yeah. not by themselves. Obviously, by the, the military of the day and the security of the day, they took it upon themselves to do the occasional beating or shooting even and stuff. But that was a silent protest. And look what happened. Yeah, absolutely. And my, my two-minute hero, I don't know if that comes in the podcast or later, but that happens to be Rosa Parks. Well, there's a good link. <laughs> well, before we hear about Rosa Parks, and in the remaining couple of minutes, we've talked about Paul being a goodie. Who, outside of the four Gospels, is a baddie? Yeah, outside of the four Gospels, because actually it's, it's inside them that I, I've looked at in the books. Is, um, so outside. Oh, yeah, you've stumped me now, actually, Martin. That's all right. We'll go for inside the four Gospels then. So inside, um, one of the most interesting ones to write about was Herod. I mean, there's lots of Herods mentioned in the New Testament, and I do untangle that a bit because I think people think there's only one and there's loads of them. But the, the Herod who was who was there at Jesus' trial, who was the son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod who slaughtered the babies. And he grew up in the wake of this. Herod the Great was an enormous figure. Um, not literally, but, you know, he was a, a builder and Herod Antipas, who was there at Jesus' trial, grew up in the shadow of this yeah. huge figure of a father. And I think I think that left him with a very profound insecurity. And so it, the quality associated with him is, is insecurity. And I think, well, like we were talking earlier, that a lot of the stuff inside us that we don't want to look at is the stuff that comes out in other ways, really. Or as I call it, we, we sweep it under the carpet so often, and it's that what we need to get out of. Yeah. yeah, and the carpet just gets bigger and bigger. You know, the lumps get bigger, and in the end it's like an obstacle yeah. course getting over that particular carpet because it's got so much swept under it. I think Herod was coming from that place, but obviously yes. he failed at the last because he, he kind of wasn't able to do anything helpful um, in terms of the trial with Jesus and Pilate, of course, even more so. Powerful man, clearly had enormous reservations yes. about what was happening with Jesus. I clearly knew, actually, a good man when he saw him. That's the thing, isn't it? You can see things, but if you're weak and don't want to go ahead with it, then uh, look what happens as a result. But uh, too weak to take the right path. Thank you ever so much for what you've been sharing today. It's been a delight. So thank you for having me on. Thank you. Which just leads on to the last thing then, and I haven't got a clue who you're going to choose. <laughs> this is lyingly. You're Christian hero, and I always have to say, that the hero is uh, someone that's a Christian and also someone that is dead, just in case we choose someone that's still alive. And then, of course, as we see in the press all too often now, whether it be a Christian, non-Christian, all the dirt, all the filth suddenly comes out. And anyway, so Jeannie Kendall. Yeah, who is your Christian hero, please? My two-minute hero. Yeah, we're very safe with her. So as you already know, if you've listened to the rest of the podcast, um, it's Rosa Parks and Again, have to thank my grandson for this because he he just adores the story of Rosa Parks. He's he's eight. Wow! Uh, I love that he's particularly loves black heroines actually, which is wonderful. But Rosa Parks, she was so she was born on the fourth of February, nineteen thirteen, in Tuscadie, which is in Alabama. 
and her mother was a teacher and her father was a carpenter and she had a little brother called Sylvester, which made me smile. I don't know why. Is it because of the film It's a Mad, 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 Mad World? It could be. I don't know. Because uh, Ethel Merman, all she ever screams at is, Sylvester! And all that sort of... It could yeah, be. I don't know. It just made me smile. Her, her parents separated when she was just a little girl. So Rosa and Sylvester moved with their mother to Alabama's capital city, which is Montgomery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story, of course, would have been very different if that hadn't happened. She was a lifelong member, actually, of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That's quite a mouthful. Yeah. But she's most well known for her refusal to stand up and give her seat to a white person on the 1st of December 1955. So I was very young at the time. Uh, my grandson keeps saying, were you alive then? No, 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 just. <laughs> it was claimed sort of generally, it's the sort of thing you read, that she refused to give up her seat because she was tired. But actually what she said was she was tired of giving in because, of course, there was enormous kind of discrimination at that time where mm. black and white people couldn't travel in the same part of the bus and, and so on, all sorts of other things. So she was arrested by the police and she was fined for breaking segregation laws. But she refused to pay. And she argued that it was the law that was wrong and not her behaviour. I mean, enormous bravery. And her treatment, of course, then sparked the Montgomery bus boycott. We were talking about protest earlier. Mm-hmm. And Martin Luther King was, was heavily involved in that. So from the 5th of December 1955, for those that like dates and measures, uh, which was the date of her trial, African-Americans refused to travel on buses. I don't think that's always recognised that that was hugely sacrificial for them. That would have meant them walking a long way. Most of them wouldn't have had cars, or if they did, they would have had to car share. So it was a very sacrificial thing to do. And it went on for 381 days, this boycott, so more than a year. And then eventually, at the end of that, the Supreme Court ruled that Alabama's racial segregation laws were unconstitutional. So they weren't valid um, and shouldn't be recognised anymore. And in the light of that, it was a wonderful victory, of course, at the time. Rosa became known as the mother of the civil rights movement. She had, and this is a sad part, again, I don't think people always know, she had to move to Detroit in 1987 because of so many threats of violence and threats against her. Um, But she and her husband founded the Rosa and Raymond Parks Institute for Self-Development. Another very long-winded name, but... And that provided career training for young people in Detroit. Um, She got the Presidential uh, Medal of Freedom in 1996 and the Congressional Gold Medal in 1999. She died actually relatively recently, 2005, at the grand age of 92. So what a woman, you know, what a life. Yeah, she's my two-minute hero. Wow. Thank you for explaining as well, you know, the death threats, because people will most probably know of Rosa Parks, but not what she would have suffered yeah. after making that amazing statement. I ain't moving, you know, and was prepared to be arrested for it. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. I'm just wondering, does anyone know whatever happened to the white bloke who challenged her to move? Whatever happened to him? I don't think so. Um, I mean, in the read lots of stories of it now because of our grandson's interest, yeah. and he's got you know books about her and people like um, Harriet Tubman and stuff. But I don't know that anybody does. I mean, I I hope they were shamed. Mm-hmm. and later on thought better you know yeah it's never too late is it never too late is it the dying thief you know last moments of his life and jesus says you'll be with me in paradise and paradise was the place where persian kings took their most honored guests did you know that no i didn't so he wasn't just saying it's okay you've made it over the line he's saying you'll be my honored guest 
Say they again what paradise is. So it was the place where um, Persian kings took their honoured guests. It was a word for it. It was it was like a garden. Yeah. It was a place of honour. So yeah. I love it. He wasn't just scraping in. He was welcomed, honoured. Properly in. Yeah. I'm just thinking about that bloke then who, who said to Rosa, whatever he said, that you know, maybe later on in life he would have thought, well, if I hadn't done that, then we wouldn't have the civil rights movement now. And... Instead of being negative about it, he could actually turn it around saying, well, OK, I was idiot. I was foolish what I did. But look what happened as a result. You know, and a lot of good came out of it. Yeah, which is what God does. Isn't it? He takes even our mistakes um, or the things that aren't so good in our lives and he weaves something from it. It's not that he wants those things to happen. I don't believe that for a minute. But he can make something beautiful out of the most unbeautiful of things. Yes. Tell your grandson read about the Bristol boycott of buses in 1967-68. I will too. My parents are in Bristol. I support Bristol City even now. And if you go onto the website, you'll see a picture of me with my Bristol City bubble hat on. But they had silly, archaic rules as to what you couldn't couldn't do, depending on your colour, working in the Bristol Bus Corporation. And it's only just started to come out, that story. Yeah. And, you know, that's 1968, yeah. you know, when rock music was like really going for it. Yeah, 1968, Bristol Bus Boycott. I will look that up and talk to him about it. Jeannie Kendall, thank you so much. It's been phenomenal what you've been sharing. And just in case people want to buy your book, it's called Heroes of Villains. And the other two, too, also a good read. Have the trilogy while you're at it. Thank you. And when you say two, two, we're not talking about ballet dresses or anything like that. So Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you.